Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. We're living in a very stressful world right now when you look at international conflict in Europe, cost of living crisis, economic uncertainty, post-pandemic world. A lot of people have a personal philosophy of the best way of trying to navigate these times is avoiding stress, minimize it entirely, compared to maybe trying to build up their own resilience. What's the optimal approach here if you are feeling incredibly stressful about your circumstances? Should you try and tackle it head on or try and maybe hide away from it? Well, to begin with, you can't hide away from it. If you think you are, you're fooling yourself. Uh, so we have to accept reality. That's, that's the first step. And then find the best ways of learning to deal with the stresses in our lives. And yes, it is a big job, but the good news is it's doable. What are some of the biggest mistakes people make when they try to build up their resilience? Are there some common errors you see time and time again where people are maybe looking for that resilience in the wrong place or trying to stimulate it in the wrong way? I, I think people really don't know how to build resilience. That's the first problem. Uh, they don't know where to look, what, what to do. And most of the time, people are winding up just... Uh, trying to get by. In fact, uh, I was listening to Michelle Obama as she was being interviewed about her latest book. And she was saying, you know, people are just trying to live their lives. And I think that's true, but it misses the point. It's like when we think of how do we handle stress do we try and avoid stress? Or, and the key really is learning how to adapt to what we are dealing with in our lives, accepting and dealing with it, rather than either trying to shrink from it, or as uh, Michelle Obama was saying, and what most people think about is sort of just hanging from our fingertips, right? It, does, it actually doesn't take any more energy. In fact, it's, there's less energy used when you figure out how to adapt to the world in the most optimal way. And what is the starting point for having a philosophy such as that? Because it sounds like it's an essential tool that most people need in their arsenal to better navigate the world. What's the starting point and how do we build from there? Yeah. So... First is to accept where we're at, as opposed to being upset at where we're at, because that just produces more stress. So acceptance is really the, the first key. And unfortunately, we actually, when we begin to look around at how we're dealing with life, we start with two strikes against us. 
So that, it's unfortunate, but that's part of our reality. So the first strike is that we are in, in, we have a stress response that does not fit our environment. We start with a stress response that we have inherited from our hunter-gatherer ancestors, the fight-or-flight response. But uh, how many of the stresses in your life can you uh, handle by either fighting them or running from them? Okay, So our bodies mobilize, and then we have to hold that energy in. So we don't have an unlimited amount of energy. And if we're using it all the time to mobilize for dangers, we don't have enough energy for healing and maintenance. Bodies have, to have a choice, uh, defend and protect or heal and recover. And so we start off with a stress response that's inappropriate, and we have to figure that one out. Um, and then the second, what I refer to as our second mismatch, that's the environmental evolutionary mismatch, we also have a developmental mismatch. And that's between the environment in which we learned how to use our stress response, our childhood environment, with our adult environment. We don't, as a child, we don't go out and sample the world for what's the best approach. We adapt to our little world that's basically our primary caregivers. We have to adapt to them. But we don't know the difference. And so our brains literally develop based on those childhood lessons. Our brain doesn't say, oh, well, you know, let's adapt to this. And then when we get to the real big world out there, we'll learn to do it better. No. Our earliest learning is our survival learning. Our brains develop based on that. And then to some degree, our ability to adapt is, gets locked into that childhood environment. And we live our adult lives based on those lessons. And so when we talk about how to become more resilient, we have to, number one, relearn a healthier response to stress that's more of a calm focus as opposed to a fight or flight. And then two, we have to recognize the bad messages, the, the conditioning, the learning from our childhood that we have to now relearn to adapt to our present environment. So those are the starting points. And I lay this out in my model of resilience that has nine components to it, in which every one of these components has to do with one aspect of living optimally and being available to learn new lessons based on our current environment. I wanted to pick up on, on one of those components with, with self-regulation skills because facing that stress in that first instance sounds almost critical in, in how you deal with it and, and finding an appropriate response that matches the stressor. How does an individual develop those self-regulation skills to better manage their emotional reactions to, to stress and pressure, mm -hmm. especially when you're in that high pressure situation when it can be very hard to, to maintain a calm exterior and a calm interior. Right, right. Well, again, it begins by accepting 
where we're at. And where we're at um, is that we have a, a nervous system that's probably more elevated than it needs to be because we encounter one stress after another in our lives in our day. And so we ramp our bodies up to handle the stress. And then before we have the opportunity to recover, we handle another stress and then another stress. So like a rubber band, it's sort of like stretching and stretching without allowing it to recover. So it's, again, recognizing that's what our reality is and then finding the time, the opportunity in each and every day to, in so the, the stress response engages one branch of our nervous system, the sympathetic branch, activation, uh, adrenaline um, to mobilize our bodies. We need to engage the other component of the nervous system, the parasympathetic, the recovery branch that helps restore all the resources used up when we activate the nervous system. And those two, system, those two branches of the nervous system need to be in balance. And so the process is to find some practice on a daily basis that helps us engage that parasympathetic recovery system. So we retrain the body into a better place of balance. And where would a good place for somebody who's never really thought about this type of work, where should they begin? Is it as simple as some breathing exercises, mindfulness? What are your recommendations for someone with no experience of thinking about these things to begin? Okay, so step one is to really get that you can't burn the candle at both ends. You can't just keep borrowing resources from the body for more and more stress. You have to restore. So it's, it's that acceptance of that reality. And then when you accept that reality, you realize, well, I spent all my time during my day in stressful behavior. I need to find some time each day to train my body to recover, to practice some form of relaxation. There are many forms. Um, it starts with your breath, okay? It's something we do <laughs> nonstop, <laughs> right? And so that's a beginning point because there are breathing patterns that contribute to stress and then there are breathing patterns that actually encourage recovery, okay? Uh, for example, and there, there isn't one type, there are many different breathing patterns, breathing approaches. This is something that has, is one of the longest histories that we have back to ancient times of optimal breathing patterns, but one that I like to use because we've now learned that when you breathe at approximately six breaths per minute, you engage a number of physiological systems in the body and bring them into alignment. And it facilitates what, what we refer to as heart rate variability. You, you're nodding your head, mm -hmm. so you, you're familiar with this, you know about that. So you can practice breathing at about six breaths per minute, which encourages recovery and balance in, in the body. And then the more you practice it, the more you get a sense of 
what six breaths per minute feels like ex- is in terms of experience. So throughout the day, you can have reminders to do a couple of minutes of that breathing pattern. For it to be most effective, you want to find at least one time during the day that you do at least 10 to 20 minutes of it. And, you know, some people say to me, well, you know, you do 10 to 20 minutes. What good is that when throughout the day you're stressing? Well, you know, if you want to build muscles, you're not weightlifting 24 hours a day. You're doing it to train those muscles, to help those muscles build. And then you could do a, 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 a exercise that then encourages your muscles in a particular direction. The same thing is with breathing and with, with the breath. One of the things that I do is called biofeedback. So biofeedback is a way of using a device to monitor some aspect of your physiology. It could be heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. It could be skin temperature at your fingertip, which measures blood flow, which changes based on stress and relaxation. Muscle tension. You could actually put a an electrode, a surface electrode on a muscle and monitor how much tension is in that muscle. The idea behind biofeedback is you get to see or hear what's going on inside your body so that when you do something that helps you relax, you hear a change in a tone or a change in the signal that lets you know you're going in the right direction or that tells you you're going in the wrong direction. Uh, either way, that feedback encourages better and better relaxation, uh, calming of the nervous system, which is really the main goal in that process. There's mindfulness training, um, but there are a lot of this meditate, different forms of meditation. They're, most of them are designed to rebalance your nervous system. You also talk about mental agility in, in building resilience. Just how important is that mental agility? And also, what exactly do you mean by the mental agility in this context? Right. So, our thinking directs where our body goes. Now, we can react emotionally and then that will direct our thinking, but we have some control over our thinking and so, if we use our thinking appropriately, it can guide us in the right direction. So, you know, when you wake up in the morning, do you look for what can go wrong or do you look for what can go right? This has to do with our history. If you grow up in an environment that's dangerous, where your parents may get angry at you for no reason or little reason, where they may be judgmental or critical, or they're, your parents may be doing their best, but they're stressed because of their worries about finances. And so as a child, they don't have to say anything for you to pick up on danger. Okay? So your history uh, guides where your thinking goes as an adult. And so for many people that I see, they wake up in the morning and they're anxious, nervous because they're thinking what can go wrong in their day, in their lives, okay? So here's a good starting point. When you wake up in the morning, focus on what can go right. 
look for what can go right. So this is mindset, okay? A positive mindset has a positive effect on your stress and how stress uh, plays a role in your life. So that's a good example. Um, when people have something to do that's difficult, they may all immediately go to, oh my goodness, that's difficult. When we say that's difficult, that already is sending us in a particular direction. If it's difficult, then we start to worry about how well we're going to do. If we're a perfectionist and we worry about people's judgments, all of these are mental factors that encourage more stress in our lives, in our experience. The more we believe there's going to be a, a positive outcome or the more that we accept that mistakes happen, that if, it, if there's a mistake, okay, I'll deal with it. It's not the end of the world. All of these mental factors, ways of thinking about our lives, determine how resilient we are. There's no doubt that having an optimistic or positive outlook immediately improves your quality of life. But there's also research that it suggests you'll live longer. It'll improve the length of your life. Definitely. So everyone knows that this is a, a, an avenue that they, they should pursue. What about someone who's sitting watching this who would love to be optimistic or positive, but there's just too much going on? They're too deep in the quagmire of, of uncertainty and stress. Is there a way they can kind of kickstart this? kickstart a way of being more positive or, or just having a more optimistic outlook. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people that I work with, when we talk about these things and I talk about being more positive, they'll always say, they'll always say to me, but I'm a realist, you know, like, <laughs> you know, this could happen and that could happen. So being resilient and having a positive attitude doesn't mean you ignore potential dangers, potential pitfalls. But what you want to do with those things is you want to address them. Okay, if this happens, how will I deal with it? But once you come up with a plan, then any additional focus on that I refer to as worry. So planning is helpful, part of being resilient. Any continual energy that you give to that negative outcome after you've already determined how you would handle it is wasteful in energy that needs to be used for your body's healing, for example. So is this the same component as emotional intelligence or is that something different? Um, emotional intelligence is a broad term that has to do with how you handle your emotions and the best ways of handling your emotions and cognitive approaches fit in there. But that's more focused on how you handle your emotions. Yeah. So how would that work in this, in this instance of, of trying to build resilience then? What, what, how can someone cultivate a healthier emotional intelligence to, to alleviate some of the concerns which we've talked about? So when we get into the arena of our emotions, um, I begin with the notion that emotions are not right or wrong. Okay. If you have an emotion, it's, it's real. You can't push it to the side. You can't say, well, I shouldn't be feeling this. If you're feeling it, it's there. And once it's there, it needs to be addressed. So a healthy approach to your emotions is, number one, 
to acknowledge them, not try and push them to the side. Number two, one of the notions around emotions is that it's what we refer to as a is part of the gestalt psychological approach. And that has to do with how our bodies are organized so that when something develops inside of us, we need to figure a way to take it to conclusion, to get resolution. That's when you could let it go without it causing residuals in your body. So we all carry around a lot of unfinished emotional business from past, and past could be our childhood or it could be yesterday. Resilience, my sixth component of resilience is emotional balance and mastery. And what that means is that you don't ignore feelings that come up, but you deal with them in a constructive way to get resolution. So if a feeling comes up, if I notice I'm angry, like the other day, I was trying to untie a knot, right? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I realized how angry I was getting because I wasn't able to do it, right? And I'm looking at this and what's going on here? This is, this is an inanimate object and I'm getting angry at it. And then I, so, you know, from experience, I realized when I have an overreaction to a situation, that's letting me know that I'm carrying some unfinished business. So then I check in with myself. Oh, you know, I'm still angry about this phone call from this morning. Okay. All right. How do I let go of that? I'm, I'm sitting with this feeling, this anger, this emotion. How do I let go of it? And I realized in that phone conversation, I was dealing with somebody who I wanted him to have a different response to what I had to say, mm -hmm. but I wasn't getting it, okay? And here's a, a really important place in these kinds of situations, because if I held on to that need that that person be different, I'll never let go of the anger because that person isn't going to respond the way I want him to respond. And now people can think about this with regard to so many of their relationships, particularly close family members who we have certain needs and want them to respond in certain ways. But, you know, that's not within our control. Whenever we want something that's out of our control, we're stuck. Okay. And that's how a lot of people feel about emotions and unfinished emotional business. They feel stuck because they're wanting this other person to be different. Please hear me, you know, please notice me, notice my feelings. And people can connect this to so many relationships in their, in their lives. So how do you re resolve this unfinished business emotions? In my case, I realized I have to disconnect my resolution from that person doing anything. And then I realized, okay, this is my responsibility, these feelings in me. And what I did was I imagined that person in the room with me and I yelled at him. But I yelled at him from the place of awareness and acceptance. 
He's not going to change, but I have to get the feeling out. And then I got the feeling out. I realized I'm not going to get what I want from this guy. I have to move on in my life. And I let go. Now, of course, if it's someone close to you, that process is more difficult, but the process is still the same. Alongside having a more positive or optimistic outlook, you also talk about the importance of having a sense of purpose or meaning to your life, not only in terms of, of resilience, but longevity and just general happiness. Yes. I'm interested to know why that sense of purpose is so important when it comes to having a more, more resilient outlook on life. Okay. I think there are a number of reasons for it. On the very basic level, um, if I have a purpose in my life, like I'm heading in that direction, there, there's something that I really need to accomplish um, because this is why I get up in the morning, right? Okay. When you have that, it helps you handle daily hassles. Daily hassles become less important because you have a bigger horizon in your life. So that's a key to it. Uh, another is that it enhances your life to have purpose. Um, a lot of people live, live with, you know, sort of anxiety about life. They live with some existential um, angst, you know, mm -hmm. why am I here? Um, and so daily hassles become more impactful. And also, we actually create more stress in our lives because it, the stress actually becomes a distraction from that angst. So those are some reasons. But I've actually written about this. Um, I, I wrote an article in Psychology Today on how pur purpose is the ultimate and use it or lose it, okay? So we now know that number one, we don't, our genetic makeup is constant, okay? But there's a process referred to as epigenetics. Epigenetics is how we impact our DNA through experience, which creates changes not to the DNA, but to whether different parts of the DNA get turned on or, or turned off, okay? So my belief is that when we have a purpose in our lives, we are sending a message down to our DNA, on, down to the level of our DNA that says this person, we need to stay alive because we have an important purpose. And so I believe that it actually creates certain changes on the very basic level of epigenetics that encourages the body to do what it needs to do to stay healthy. Now, if your purpose, it's interesting, if your purpose is to make more money, I don't think this process works. I think the purpose that you have has to be for a, a broader um, benefit to society in order for it to impact us through the epigenetic mechanisms in our DNA. So, in other words, I think there are many levels at which purpose benefits us. 
How might someone begin to discover their purpose? And I know that might sound like a silly question, but some people are motivated by money, some people are motivated by fame. It sounds as though these might not be the kind of life goals that are, that are optimal. How should someone go about trying to find that purpose that's really going to make a difference to not only their short-term happiness, but their long-term health? Well, I think, ironically, the most important thing is simply that they want to find purpose. <laughs> okay. okay. So if you're exploring what, where can I find purpose in my life, I think that puts you, I like to say in, in, my, in my work, it puts you on the path. Um, being on the path is the way of functioning optimally. And my nine pillars of resilience help put people on the path. And so if you say to yourself, if you decide, I want to find purpose in my life, I'm going to explore to find that, that already puts you on the path. I want to talk about physical exercise and the role, the important role that plays in all of this in building resilience. Why is physical exercise so important? What's going on underneath the skin that, that makes it such a useful tool, especially if you are someone who is, is very stressed and, and struggling to deal with that stress? Right, right. So number one, we talked earlier about the fight or flight response, how the body mobilizes and then has to hold all that energy in, right? So on a very basic of levels, exercise gives that body the opportunity to release all of what's held in, okay? So it, it contributes to this notion of balance. So that's num number one. But number two is that this body is the only body we have, right? Uh, at least for the present moment, you know, we can replace parts but you want to keep your body in its best shape, best condition, so that your body stays healthy as long as possible. The longer you keep your body healthy, the longer you delay onset of various illnesses. So that's another reason. We now have evidence that exercise creates biochemical changes in the body that contribute to the health of the body. It, it sends more oxygen up to the brain. It does so many different things that are positive for the health of the body. So there's so many reasons for exercise. And I think there's so many reasons to do exercise for flexibility, exercise for strength, and exercise for endurance. I think each of those play an important role in the health of us physically and emotionally and mentally. In terms of other lifestyle interventions, how much do we understand about the role nutrition plays in all of this? Because obviously it has a huge impact on, on how we look, but also how we feel. At what point are we, in terms of nutritional knowledge, to know what might be optimal and, and on the flip side, what is suboptimal? Well, uh, as you are probably aware, um, right now, I am in the process of uh, putting on a, a summit on longevity, and I'm doing it with my friend and partner, Dr. Rob Lufkin. And the whole idea about the summit is bringing aspects of mind and body together, how they relate to each other. 
Um, but one of the things that we touch on quite a bit is diet and foods and what's good and what's not. And our society is going in the wrong direction with regard to diet and nutrition. When you go to a supermarket, so many of the products that you choose in the supermarket are not good for you. Um, all levels of junk food, um, all levels of, sh of foods that have sugar and all different substitutes for sugar that are just as bad for you. Mm -hmm. So um, diet is very important. You want to eat um, foods that uh, don't have any additives in them. You want to eat foods as close to the earth as possible or from the earth as possible. You want to eat organic. You want to avoid all kinds of um, pesticides and other kinds of things that are put into, into our foods to protect them from insects, to, to help them stay on the shelf longer. Uh, in fact, you want to avoid all foods that um, have a shelf life, a long shelf life. So all of these are very important in the overall process of how we eat, how we live our lives. I, as a result of my learning, I've shifted my eating habits quite a bit. I, sugar has always been my weak link, <laughs> and I'm doing my best to keep reducing, reducing, reducing how much I'm doing a better job of not bringing foods into my house that have sugar in them. Um, I keep improving on that. I'm not perfect, but I keep improving. I've, our work together, Rob and my work together, and through our interviews, we're realizing the benefits of, for example, intermittent fasting. And so right now, I don't, I have an eight-hour window in which I do all my eating. I don't eat until noon, and I finish by 8 p.m., and this has been very helpful to me because it's, it's made it easier for me to not do any snacking after 8 o'clock. Um, and there are all kinds of positive health benefits of this 16 hours not eating. So even though I'm missing out on some of the things that I've enjoyed in the past, to me it's worth it to be healthier. Something a lot of us struggle with is kind of the internal monologue, the voice that's always talking to us. And, and sometimes that internal voice isn't particularly kind and it can be very, very self-critical. Yes. I was really interested to get your thoughts on the role of self-compassion, self-care in, in resilience, because how we talk to ourselves matters so much, but some of us seem to be getting it so wrong. Why do you think that is and, and how we, can we begin to talk to ourselves in more friendly terms? We learn the lessons that we live throughout our lives in our childhood. But also, that voice that you're just referring to develops out of those lessons. So I like to say that the voice we hear 24-7 is the spokesperson of that childhood pattern. Well, it's bound to be wrong because it developed out of an environment that isn't an optimal environment. I don't care the best 
childhood that you might have had. I had a good childhood, but I got a lot of bad lessons, not that the, my parents intentionally gave them to me, but you know, some of them are from their wounding, some of them from their lessons of childhood. They grew up in, uh, in the Depression years, so that influenced them. They grew up during World War II, that influenced them, and I came out of, out of that. So I'm bound to get lessons that are not optimal. But my voice that I developed was based on that environment, which could be at times critical of me, which could at times be, you know, imagining that other people are being judgmental of me, etc. So the first step, and this has to do with my first pillar of resilience, my first pillar is our relationship with ourselves. And that's based on how we treat ourselves, how we talk to ourselves. And one of the things I have, the people that I work with on all levels in training and courses, is to begin to stalk their pattern, stalk that voice. What is that voice saying? How is it treating you? And I like to um, refer to um, a, a psychologist at the University of Washington. His name is John Gottman. And he... Uh, does a lot of research with couples, and he has re he has found that in relationships, if the positive to negative interactions are twenty to one positive to negative, that is that relationship is in good shape. But when that r ratio comes down to about five to one positive to negative, that relationship is in trouble. So I've taken that concept and referred to a person's Gottman ratio, okay? And so I have people pay attention to how they talk to themselves. What is your Gottman ratio? Is it 5 to 1, 20 to 1, or is it 1 to 5, more negative than positive, okay? Well, how do we address this? So you have this existing voice that is not one that you chose, it's one that developed out of the lessons of childhood. What we want to identify is a healthy internal voice, a healthy internal parent. And so I've identified the qualities of a healthy internal parent. They come from a place of compassion, love, acceptance, support, and care. And I've recently added a sixth one which is joy, something that people leave off the table too much of the time, right? And so um, he, now we have an ideal. Now we have a place to shift to. How do I let go of this? I go over to here. How do I let go of my judgments? Well, what's the appropriate way to talk to yourself, to treat yourself? And it's never being harsh and critical of yourself. It's always being loving and accepting of yourself and compassionate. And so part of the process of becoming resilient is the more you could say no to that voice and recognize that it's never correct, never correct, that people have difficulty with the never, and shift into, now you have a place you can shift to, this healthy voice. And how does that healthy voice talk to you? From compassion love and acceptance, okay? 
And why is this always wrong? And I say it's always wrong even when it recites a fact. Interesting. Even when it recites a fact, it's still wrong. And that's because it comes from the wrong place. It comes from a wounded place. And typically, if it's reciting a fact, it's using it against you. And so, yeah, you got that wrong. Why did you get that? You shouldn't have gotten that wrong. You are not good enough, et cetera, et cetera. Well, um, from a healthy perspective, it's okay to make mistakes. From a healthy perspective, you don't have to be perfect. From a healthy perspective, we learn from our mistakes, etc. So my first pillar of resilience is learning to identify these bad messages and then to shift into the healthy place. And I work with people that anytime they're not feeling good, it's because there's some message that they're giving themselves that causes that. You mentioned your parents there in the Great Depression, Second World War, and I think for a lot of people, their strategy when they faced a stressful or an anxious or even potentially depressing part of their life is to think, well, it's not as bad as someone else. It might be a, a relative, an ancestor, someone else in another country. Is that a healthy strategy? <laughs> um, I laugh because we do that on all different levels. In fact, I have people who have difficulty taking in the good because they're concerned about other people and, and it gets in their own way of appreciating the good in their own, in their own lives. So um, I don't like to use absolutes, but um, you want to think about yourself. You want to find ways for you to be happy in your life. You don't want to do it at someone else's expense. So you don't want to, one of our biggest problems is doing comparisons because there's always going to be someone else actually that's doing better than you that you could look to to feel badly about. So in general, I encourage people not to do those comparisons. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure and fascinating conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.